it's just the uh, trauma narrative and how it's refuted on a daily basis. And um, I just want to record that Curb Herbstreit is the most prominent college football announcer in the country. He works for ESPN. He does their Saturday college shows. He wrote a memoir, Out of the Pocket. Zach, how would, what would you guess Out of the Pocket? What's that title suggest to you? So scrambling and... Uh... Yeah, where you're in the pocket, you're being protected by your guards. And if you're out of the pocket, you're on your own. So he's a guy, he's a big athlete. And he says, well, I don't usually talk about myself. And he wrote a memoir. And in the memoir, he said, whenever you, I see somebody presenting a memoir, I'm thinking, I don't think he's going to tell a story that his parents lived in a white picket house. Yeah. And everything really went perfect. I mean, I guess that happens, but those people don't write memoirs. So he's a strong, silent type guy. He said, I don't usually talk about myself. In fact, writing his memoirs away, maybe my family can learn about me. And he says uh, his parents divorced when he was young. They both remarried. They divorced again. And his own father was absent. He went to eight schools in nine years where he was painfully shy. And then he became a quarterback at Ohio State. So uh, he was interviewed by Willie Geist and MSNBC. Willie Geist, he's the guy who asked the most questions that I would ask if I were the interviewer. It's a little hard to watch a guy talk on national TV and to hear he was painfully shy. And Herb Streit said, I actually learned about interviews being interviewed when he was a football player. I had no training. When I was asked to speak in front of a group, I was so passionate talking about football, I just went with it. And so, you know, when you're trained to do interviews, if you're not natural, you know, if you don't experience the media, they say, well, listen to the question. Just talk about what you know. Don't talk about what your coach did or anybody else. And only talk as long as you have something to say. So once again, we have a guy, uh, he's married, he has four, he married his college girlfriend, he has four kids, he has a job, he talks constantly and he was painfully shy. So if we wanted to do a reverse narrative, what we would say is what can we find from people who faced kind of a lot of challenges and overcame them to be successful? And in his case, um, you know, he got really good at something and he stuck to it. And when they talked to him, he was able to talk about it because he was passionate about it. And I just, so I just want to revisit one other um, memoir, which you and I have already discussed, Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. What's, what's that title suggest to you, Green Lights? Go for it. Think, what's that? Like, go for it. So um, I just want to read the first page of his memoir, if I may. He doesn't need any, it's a joke to say, oh, he doesn't need any help from us. <laughs> um, this is not a traditional memoir. Yes, I tell stories from the past, but I have no interest in nostalgia, sentimentality, or the retirement most memoirs require. This is not an advice book either, although I like preachers, I'm not here to preach to you. This is an approach book. 
an approach to life. Look, I'm here to share stories, insights, and philosophies that can be objectively understood. And if you choose subjectively adopted by either changing your reality or changing how you see it. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is kind of a cognitive psychologist mm. philosopher. This is a playbook best based on adventures in my life. Let, all of the reviews of his memoir talk about the fact that he was beaten as a child by his father with a belt, but he doesn't resent his father. His fa and he gives his father credit for encouraging him. His father wanted to be a lawyer or something like that. But when he decided to become an actor, his father said, well, just make sure you do it right. So we're not, and he, of course, has children. He would never hit them. So we don't want to imply anything about the upbringing he had, but that's not what the biography's about. That's just what all the reviews were about. This is a playbook based on adventures in my life, adventures that have been significant, enlightening, and funny, sometimes because they were meant to be, but mostly because they didn't try to be. I'm an optimist by nature, and humor has been one of my great teachers. It has helped me deal with pain, loss, and lack of trust. I mean, he's kind of the most famous actor in America yet. I'm not perfect, no, I step in shit all the time and I recognize it when I do it. I just learned how to scrape above my boots and carry on. We all step in shit from time to time. We hit roadblocks, we fuck up, we get fucked, we get sick. We don't get what we want. We cross thousands of could have done betters and wish that wouldn't have happened in life. Stepping in shit is inevitable. I don't know if he had to say shit that many times in one page. So let's either see it as good luck or figure out how to do it less often. I don't know. I, I might vote for him for governor of Texas if he runs, although, you know, I don't think I get a vote in Brooklyn. So um, that's kind of our philosophy a bit. You know, like I say, Matthew McConaughey doesn't need our endorsement. But um, I want to talk a little bit about our intellectual philosophy now, today, as I go into another topic of concern. We're, we don't believe in conspiracies or crazy sub-realities. We're like, um, we're logical positivists. We believe there's real evidence and real true stories, but we question the true stories that we hear. And in general, we feel that our lives are managed by governing myths. Now we only have enough time usually to deal with governing myths about addiction. That usually keeps us pretty well occupied what, with one thing and another. But what's in the news this week is, perhaps you've heard, Afghanistan. And um, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years, longest war ever. We spent $2 trillion. And there've been a lot of consequences, you know, only, this, that's like a bad joke. 2,700 Americans were killed, tens of thousands of, Afghans were killed, but uh, many people came home disabled and explosive devices have, you know, wrecked their bodies and 
post-traumatic stress. And the United States funded that $2 trillion with debt. And so, gosh, we were invested in Afghanistan in the worst ways. Um, and what did we get from it? We got, got nothing from it. And even that's not what this is about. Um, what this is about is how did that work? And um, Biden, I, I voted for Biden and I like Joe Biden. And I like Joe Biden because he's been daring as president. I'm with Matt McConaughey on being daring. He's going all in as much as he can on poverty and on the environment. But when he pulled out of, of uh, Afghanistan, the entire administration seems to have been stunned by the fact that instantly, I mean, it didn't take a week, uh, the Taliban, the Muslim nationalist local forces just took over. And when they do, inter uh, he was, when he does interviews, George Stephanopoulos interviewed him, Biden sits there and says, well, we had 300,000 troops. They had 300,000 troops and they were well-trained. Mm -hmm. And so that's like some kind of reality. Those troops, immediately gave up their weapons and dissolved and turned the country over to the Taliban. And so um, you're sitting there thinking, nobody in the government knew that. And, you know, uh, as you're aware, I'm very busy refuting addiction myths, but I knew that we had no substantial presence in Afghanistan. I knew that from reading the New York Times and watching a couple of shows on NBC. And so if I would have been questioning President Biden, I would have said, nobody in your administration, nobody knew the reality that there was a tissue paper fabric that would uh, destroy itself instantaneously. And then I would have volunteered to become uh, Tony Blinken, and I think is the Secretary of State or Defense State. And there's some, you know, there's a Joint Chief of Staff. Then I would have offered my services. I would have said, well, I knew that. You know, how do you get this job of being Secretary of Defense? Because the guy you hired didn't know the reality on the ground. What's your, what do you think the reality is that they didn't know? What do you think's actually, they had nothing and everybody thought they had 300,000 troops. How do you interpret that discrepancy between the reality, reality, and their reality. How do you think of it? Well, it's been a long time story that we're in there because we're rendering the nation competent to defend themselves, to, you know, create a democratic great nation. And so we had to believe that story or else why are we in there? So I, I hearken back to Carol Tavers' explanation of cognitive dissonance. You know, when um, you can really get you have to believe that there's some reason why you're doing something and you have to believe that the reason is not evil. And so we've latched onto that and we've had, we've gone through incarnations of that story, but we've all come to sort of believe it. And it would be, it'd be kind of too pain. It's a load bearing kind of a fiction. So if you take that away, then, uh, you know, you have nothing. So I think people really believe that they, they couldn't. So a fiction becomes the reality. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can observe it philosophically. I mean, our, your and my view is reality is reality and you can't escape it. 
um, which is what happens when the troops leave and then they take over the country. But, but the reality, if everybody accepts something, I mean, Tony Blinken's not going to lose his job because the reality, and of course, you know, you can always wonder, did he really believe it or not? You know, the reality becomes the dominant theme and everybody has to sign on to it. And to a large extent, I guess Americans probably didn't think all that much about it, but they ex mainly accepted the reality. Now, what's doubly amazing about all of this is everybody, when they see all the people storming the American embassy trying to get out, it's exactly reminiscent of Vietnam. In 1975, we finally withdrew from Vietnam and all the people that were gonna get murdered. Uh, by, by the way, one last thing. Let me, let me ask you, a, how come the Taliban won? That is a little beyond, I think it has an addiction link up. Why did the Taliban win and we lose? That's a complicated question, but if it, their whole existence is to do what they did. And so they're watching for the, I mean, they're ready for the day that they see a clear path to being able to completely take over whatever they can. And so that, I mean, they're wrapped up in doing exactly what they did, being terrorists. They're patient. I guess. I, I would, here's my link to addiction. Yeah. It's a big blink, big jump. Our job in working with a person in addiction is to convey to them agency. That mm. they're in charge because we know we're only dealing with them briefly. That's the nature of our game. And so there's a comparison. The United States' job was to create agency in Afghanistan. Right. right. But they didn't. And people didn't think it did. We had a puppet government. They stole the money that we put in there. And the Taliban has their ups and downs. I, I'm, not I'm not defending child eating and I'm not defending the Taliban, but they're there, they care. They're not going anywhere else. Um, and at least they're trying to do their own thing. And if we wanted to succeed in replacing them or defeating them, we needed to create or help or we don't create you support a group that has a feeling of agency where they care and they're invested and it matters to them and right. didn't do that. And what's so remarkable, let me return to Vietnam is if we were about to learn a lesson, we would have learned that lesson in Vietnam where exactly the same thing happened yeah. in 1965. Um, I mean, it's, you can't evaluate catastrophes. You can't compare them. But we were there 10 years, 58,000 Americans died in Vietnam. Phew. A lot of people sacrificed their lives and, and lost a lot. And then the second we left, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong took over. And sort of everybody knows the correct answer to that question. There's a new uh, documentary about Vietnam being made and I've heard this a million times. They asked an American officer, well, you know, why couldn't this, we win or why did the South Vietnamese take over? And the guy would say, 
if I had 10 Viet Cong guys on my team, I would have won compared to a thousand South Vietnamese soldiers. The Viet Cong soldiers would lay in the mud for weeks. And because as in Afghanistan, these are foreign people coming to take us over. That's how we were perceived. And people do a lot to avoid that. And so what's amazing, you gave a really good summary of how it was that we had nothing in Afghanistan and why we believed we had something. But what's kind of amazing is that same delusional system existed in Vietnam and a lot of the people who are around now at the upper echelons knew about Vietnam. How are they not able to learn that lesson? And your answer replies the same. Once you get invested in something, history, science, and everything else ceases to matter. You're embedded in this reality and you'll defend it. But what's most amazing about that, when we deal in addiction, we say most people get better and addiction's a kind of a delusion where you think, well, you know, I'm shooting heroin or drinking and my life's okay. We say most people will see if there's a better way to improve their life, if they get to a place in their life where they wanna try and have something positive, will move in that positive direction. They'll eschew the delusion. They'll try to link up to reality because reality is their life. But that doesn't apply at a global and national and a cultural level. I mean, the Demo Democrats and Biden, it's not good news, those pictures of the Taliban running through the country and all those people struggling to get out of the country. That doesn't, that's not gonna help with, you know, in infrastructure and environment and voting rights, it's not gonna help him. And yet he still got caught in that bunker. You kind of imagine a, uh, the comparison, it's sort of what you're saying anyway, and someone sending a loved one to a rehab facility and then they leave the rehab facility, they've been whatever you wanna call it, sober or abstinent for 30 days or whatever it is. And then they come back and they've spent all that money and then they're back in the environment where they started with nothing changed, no greater purpose necessarily. And then they're using drugs again or their same beha their behavior is similarly destructive. And you, you have a loved one that says, well, I sent you away to this expensive rehab. I gave you all that you need. And so you're on your own. Well, what the hell? It's, it's exactly the same thought process, just on a grand scale. And it's sort of like, oh, well, and Biden says that. Well, we train them. Right. And now they can't fight. It's their fault. And at a minimum, you could say, well, we could have saved $2 trillion and gotten the same nothing. Right. Or maybe we could have done a better job. And that's beyond our little scope here, you know, how we sure. could have done a better job. Um, now, the alternative, the other thing that I write about in my memoir, you, you recall, is Delray Beach, mm -hmm. where people don't actually ever leave Delray Beach. Right. 
the concept is um, 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 well, if they go back in the real world and, and a woman in New York Times, it's in my introduction, interviewed me and said, well, isn't this a good way to go? And I said, well, I don't know. What about dealing with reality as an actual measure of mental health? And then 10 years later, there's an article about it's the hottest spot for drug deaths in the country because people hang around forever. They relapse. I mean, they never emerge from that reality. Um, well, one of the stories I tell my memoir, do I, do I have a minute to tell a story about my oral Bring it story? on. Um, you know, I'm not really allowed to talk about individual cases. Although I do talk about um, I, one client, because he's dead and he's an historical figure, who is uh, Hillary Clinton's role model. So that's in the book. He was a client of mine. But I'll talk about a person whose life I can disguise. Um, I had baby teeth. And so late in life, I had to have these baby teeth pulled and have artificial teeth inserted. And that's a quite expensive process. And so I went, you know, to a guy who was, everybody knew he was good. And when I got there, he said, oh, you know, my son was just in, um, rehab around heroin in uh, Delray B in Florida and he's smoking marijuana and drinking now after he got out and they experts there inform me that's a relapse and I can't let him come home he has to stay there and for some reason this oral surgeon was you know obviously smart but he was he he was looking askance at that advice and I said, well, you know, some people can't manage heroin, can manage marijuana and alcohol. Um, staying in Florida, that's not rehab. That's, you know, you, you can afford to keep him there forever, but an alternative way of going is to allow him to come home, to put in requirements in your house. Is he going to go to school? You can't disrupt your house. You have to make clear what the house rules are out of your own integrity. And then, you know, let him get retracted in life. So as the story goes on, what, he replaced one of my baby teeth. And the next time I came in to replace baby, my next baby tooth, he said, you know, you saved my family's life. Hmm. And then I went home and I, this is before emails, late 80s, I wrote him a letter and said, you know, he charged me like, these numbers probably don't even cover what he charged me, $5,000 and I saved your family's life. And then he wrote me a letter saying two things. One, you, you may not be aware what the real cost is. I actually gave you a professional discount. And B, you know, I don't usually pay for professional services when a guy's sitting in my chair for 20 minutes and gives me his opinion. <laughs> so I, but he then said, but I gave you a professional, you know, usually a dentist doesn't give a psychologist a professional discount. So when I had my other tooth replaced, you know, we were in for a couple of thousand on my BF. So I figured, okay, we're good. <laughs> Anyhow, so let me move on from my little, you know, dental uh, surgeon problems um, to the fact that people have these realities that they can't escape 
and we can work with the client to escape a reality. You and I, well, clients come to the Light Brothers program because they're already not happy with the current reality. They right. don't, because it says at the website, non-disease, non-12-step program, they're not coming there just saying, oh man, AA's, you know, they're already saying, is this really supposed to be helping me or, because it doesn't work for me, either they've been in it or they, you know, heard about it and they say, I don't think that's going to work for me. Right. It's um, important. To, it's important to say up front that at some level, you just have to let people believe what they're going to believe. But the thing that we're working on is instilling them with the, just the, the ability to understand the scope of what reality is. And so, and usually that happens. I mean, we don't need to tell someone you should believe something different or you should look beyond what you're doing now. People are coming to us already saying something's going on. And so can you help me track this? Which is what was happening with the oral surgeon. He's sort of saying, is this true? Yeah. That he has to stay in Florida because he drinks? Is that, it's sort of like you're a reasonably smart person. And part of what we say is, well, we're sort of saying no, but you know, what do you think? And, you know, let's talk about what you think and, you know, the way you think may be more in keeping with the way that we think. So let's go up, let's go up in that, that way, that lane. So anyhow, um, that brings us to Vietnam, back to Vietnam in our correct professional guises which is addiction people. And in 1975, when we wrote Love and Addiction, uh, the heroin fallout from Vietnam had already become apparent. And in Love and Addiction, we quoted Richard Wilbur, who was Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health and Environment, which is a job, that's a big job. And he said, everything I learned in medical school about addiction was wrong, according to Vietnam, which is once you become hooked, you're permanently, inevitably, eradicably hooked. Vietnam proved every aspect of that wrong. And what we said in Love and Addiction, which that, that was 1975, that's when we pulled out of Vietnam, but the heroin thing had become a little apparent in the early, around maybe even a little earlier. And then um, Lee Robbins, medical sociologist, epidemiologist at Washington University at St. Louis, thoroughly investigated the whole Vietnam thing. And what she found, I'll, I'll jump to the chase, Nobody believed it then, and nobody believes it now. That, nobody believes Lee Robbins' findings then, nobody believes them now, even though they're clear. So people, somebody just wrote an article that I passed around saying, we never learned a lesson of Vietnam, which is a little bit how we begin, could be the title of this. We didn't learn a lesson of Vietnam and Afghanistan because it was too challenging to our reality as you pointed out. So screw reality, except there's a time when reality comes and smacks you right in the face. And we saw that that happened this past week. Oh, the Taliban just took over the country like nothing happened and tens of thousands of people are trying to escape and they can't do it. 
because we made no preparations because we sort of thought everything was sort of hunky-dory. And um, what Lee Robbins found is you had people who were addicted in Vietnam who were more or less regular people on average. What was what were her, I, I've read the study uh, like a trillion times, but what were her uh, metrics for calling someone addicted? What were the, uh, what was that framework at the well, time? One of the articles I read said, oh, we maybe can't trust the Vietnam data because people use heroin occasionally without being addicted. Yeah. That's not the Robbins study. They had to have undergone withdrawal in Vietnam. I mean, there were people who took heroin, but they weren't the subjects in the study. Right. The subjects in the study were men who had gone withdrawal at some point in Vietnam. Right. So the article saying we didn't learn from Vietnam misstates. And from the start, I was at the University of Michigan and I organized the workshop and uh, Michigan was famous. They had the, uh, the uh, high school drug study and it was run by Lloyd Johnston. And I had on my on the panel and he said, well, of course, they weren't really injecting her when they were snorting. They were snorting and injecting. What people spend all of their time doing, God bless Lord Johnson, it's probably dead, then think he can see me, is explaining why the results really didn't happen. That's what your job becomes. You know, Anthony Blinken's job, Lloyd Johnson's job. Even this person who was writing an article about how we didn't learn a lesson in Vietnam, so these guys were addicted. And even she can't believe the results. And when they got off the plane, only 5% were addicted in the first year back. And most of them didn't even undergo withdrawal. So that, that just can't happen. It so happens, um, this last weekend, I was with a psychiatrist and we were discussing Carl Hart's book. People don't believe Carl Hart's book. Yeah, right. I mean, they mainly look at it and they say, oh, so his story is, well, Carl Hart can take heroin because, well, he's a professor. He's one guy in a million. That's what Sally Sattel says. Right. You can't, you can't not believe both of those things. You can't say, uh, well, some people are taking heroin and not addicted, and then also not believe that people could take heroin and not be addicted to it. And... Yes, that's so you're believing one, well, if you take heroin, you're going to get addicted. And then you're also believing, well, then you can't quit it. I mean, you believe the whole Michigas, the mm. whole ball of wax. And, you know, the very first time I saw Carl Hart, he was interviewed by John Tierney. Amaya was there and he did his routine. 80, 90 percent of people who take illicit drugs don't have any problems. As you and I discuss, go back and forth, and Carl doesn't focus on addiction. He, he uses substance use disorder and addiction to say, he'll talk about something like a problem. In other words, not 89% of people who use illicit drugs don't have a problem. Right. He will focus on addiction. And then he introduced me, for, as we usually did when we were in the same venue. Well, there's Stanton Peel. I learned a lot of what I know from him. And afterwards, a guy came up to me. He was practically crying. He said, well, what he said about Heroin isn't true, is it? And I you could have asked anyone else in this damn room. 
Why would you, you're asking the wrong guy. Yeah. And then um, John Tierney wrote a column for the New York Times called the Tierney Lab. And its byline was, just because everybody believes something doesn't mean it's not true, but it's probably a good indication that it is. He's a very libertarian kind of guy. He didn't believe Carl. I mean, I would, I asked, I said, John, do you believe Carl? And he said, no, because you, you're not allowed to not believe that heroin is inherently and compulsively and permanently addictive. You're not allowed to believe it. It's against the law in America. And so, um, there, 1975, we wrote about that on love and addiction. And um, um, there's still, there, uh, the, this article only came out in 2021 or possibly 2020 saying, um, um, we didn't learn a lesson in Vietnam and stating what the lesson is. And then Carl Hart who's famous and widely respected is telling his story and people spend all their time explaining it away. <clears throat> well, okay, maybe Carl Hart, a professor of neuroscience, can take her without becoming addicted. But what about all those? Well, they mm -hmm. were addicted, let's get back, and then they quit. And what is that story? What's the Vietnam story tell us? That 95% of them quit and they didn't even go un, uh, undergo acute withdrawal. Two, uh, three other things that they found I'll just throw out there. There's a the 5% who did get re-addicted, but they were predictable by the amount of antisocial involvement they had before going to Vietnam. Right. So what the 95% who quit were like kind of more or less normal with the normal range of problems. The second thing that was true was treatment didn't help the 5%. If you got went into treatment, you were more likely to become re-addicted. Um, the third thing that happened, this, this is so scary, I can barely mention it. I, uh, Lee Robbins was a kind of behavioral sociologist. And when people took heroin, half of the people took heroin stateside and didn't become most of them. They're the people, only 5% became re-addicted. So Lee Robin had to say, if heroin is, if addiction is defined as taking something regularly, heroin was no more addictive than any other drug that the veterans took stateside, including barbiturates, amphetamines, and marijuana. That whole thing we believe, well, heroin makes you addicted. It's the only drug that really makes you addicted. Well, how do you define addiction? Well, that's, you have to take it all the time. In the streets, the way she put it was, on the streets of the United States, people were no more likely to take heroin compulsively or regularly than any other illicit drug. Nobody, nobody believes that. Except, and ironically, in the meaning of addiction in my memoir, Lee Robbins doesn't believe it. Lee Robbins in subsequent things she wrote would talk about heroin being addictive Although, as she pointed out, if you define addiction as being taking things regularly or compulsively, it's no more addictive than all the other, any other drug that, or right. alcohol, of course, that people take. So 
we're back to your explanation of why the United States got in a situation in Afghanistan and believed a delusion that eventually, which cost a ton of money and that negative people died. And then people came home with all of that craziness and not being able to adjust to America and all of the social costs as well as the financial costs. And it fell down around our ears. And you explain that people have that reality and that's their reality. They're gonna defend it almost to the death. And we have an addiction reality. And so, you know, from Love and Addict, from uh, the original Vietnam study by Lee Robbins, from Love and Addiction, and, and you and I, of course, dealt with that in um, our growing addiction. People can read about what we've just spoken about if they look up um, Vietnam in Filter Magazine. It's, we, we had a chapter about what Vietnam told us and all the data that show it's still true. One of our one of our reviews book reviews was something like uh, okay book yada 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 same old studies about Vietnam. It's like a three star review. Someone like enjoyed it, but was was just getting tired of the same old study. And well, here's the explanation of why why would you cite a study that you've been citing personally for since the study's been done? Well, because we can't seem to wrap our minds around why that study is important. But we only use that to our to defend ourselves. We begin that chapter with that, and then we go into all the recent, of course, of course, uh, epidemiological data that show the same thing. Of the course, yeah. Heroin quit. Um, you know, over ninety percent. Well, there aren't enough heroin users to be in those studies. Most over ninety percent of illicit drug users quit. But you know, in previous studies, um, uh, they at one point they asked people. Have you ever taken crack cocaine? Have you ever taken heroin? Um, have you taken it in the last year? Have you taken it in the last month? And the number of people who've taken it in the last month is about 5%. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just, that's a study of everybody in the market. They don't even use that anymore because there aren't enough heroin users to do it. But it, Every piece of data says the same thing, that human beings will, in the course of events, reject an experience that's very negative and they can, if they can do better in their lives. So uh, we're back to the fact that uh, a reviewer could say, oh, they're still studying Vietnam. And then the reviewer could say, and anybody, nobody believes that anyhow. And Carl Hart, he's more prestigious than them. Nobody believes him anyhow. You know, the review in the New York Times says, well, everything he says about heroin can't be true. You know, I've, right, right. I've studied, yeah, I know all about drugs. Right, he could be saying, he could write the same review about Carl Hart. Yada, yada, same old thing. Drugs aren't the problem. Move on, you know. And, you know, if Carl Hart runs into that flack, we're going to keep running into the flack. But what, what we're trying to do here is... Well, three things. There's a real reality. There's a social reality. The social reality dictates um, policy and behavior and therapy. And there can be very negative consequences. 
And so our point is, well, people can say, oh, God, we don't believe any of that. Vietnam, Stanton Beale and Zach Rhodes, Carl Hart. Oh, 93,000 people died drug deaths last year. That's A. Um, and B, we, we are doubling down with the disease theory. Um, um, in 1997, Alan Leshner, he didn't invent the disease theory, but he said, addiction is a brain disease and it matters. And it matters, yeah. At that time, 900,000 people have died of drugs. Yep. Where Voco became head of uh, the NIDA in 2003, about 700,000 people have died since then. And Nora Voco is inching along this precipice where she says, well, it is a disease. I know that people have been raising objections. And she sort of talks about these more and more. But it's all about fighting a rear guard battle. And she just won a prestigious award from the American Medical Association in 2020. And um, in a blog post I'm going to release, in 2021, people published an article saying something like um, how we have to reconsider and reaffirm the disease theory. And they list all the things that are, have been claimed that are wrong about disease. Well, there's a lot of controlled use. Most of the dangerous uses are compulsive. There's a lot of natural remission. No mechanism has been found that could possibly explain or account for the concept that heroin per se is iron, addictive in an ironclad way. Nonetheless, we still have to carry on with the disease theory. Right. And our whole point of this little seminar is, are we creating our own? Afghanistan doesn't seem as apocalyptic. Maybe because only 2,500 Americans died compared to 57,000. You know, they have a memorial in Washington where they have the name of every human being who died on our behalf in Vietnam, American. You know, and people thought, what kind of a exhibit is that? But when you go there and you say, <laughs> oh, my God, you just read the names. It's just like reading names. Yeah. And people are there, you know, tracing out their son or their grandson's name. And we're willing to allow people to die to promote and preserve a myth and to not possibly question it's not its delusional basis. And you and I, Carl Hart, you know, that guy who gave us three stars maybe, a handful of people are willing to contest all of that. I want to frame a, try to frame a question for you that it has so many parts that whatever, I'll do my best to synthesize it. So you have um, there's a few different reasons for keeping the story alive. And so you get, like I saw the other day, somebody that I know who was a substance abuse prevention person in a school. And she was talking about how someone that she knew, a former client, overdosed. And so she was, I mean, had that emotional charge to say, now more than ever, we need to double down. <laughs> you know double down on our already current theory so we need to work hard reminds me of like the string theorists that are doing all these fanciful maths to describe the nature of the universe but making no predictions and those are people winning awards right now is that's the same kind of a thing except this is really emotionally charged so you have that aspect so it's like so in other words, people see the failure of current pop by the way when ethan Abelman started out 
and he would give it, he would debate somebody. The guy he would be debating would begin by saying, well, I realize the current policy isn't working that well. So Ethan's opening line would be, you know, I'm supposed to be presenting a, a, a oppositional policy. However, the guy who defends the policy has already spent 25 minutes explaining, well, it's not optimal what's going on. Yeah. And so you and I, so people come up and say, well, somebody overdosed, oh my God, that goes to show what a disease it is. It's sort of like the failure of the current policy is used as a way of alarming and buoying, alarming people and buoying up the current policy. So you're in a position of having, oh, don't you see how addictive these drugs are or that drug is? How could you possibly say anything else? And you know, you're, your reaction is, well, wait a second, you know, our current policy is built around that. That's how the person died. And now where do we go if you, and our, our, what we say, and well, when we treat people, we, well, we don't treat people, we coach people. We say, um, well, if people um, are able to improve their lives, it's a slow, awkward process. It's Vietnam, people, the, the argument against the Vietnam data is they'll say, well, wait a second, they were in Vietnam, and the guy uh, wrote that uh, on the Addiction Theory Network, a good friend of mine, um, <clears throat> uh, wrote, well, sure, if you bring people back from Vietnam, mm -hmm, then they'll get better. Mm -hmm. Okay, good idea, get them out of a war zone and get them home and get them productively involved in life. Obviously, you know, the, well, some people, that we're dealing with are in kind of war zones. It would be good to get them out of a war zone um, in terms of where their lives are at. And then, you know, other people, what we're trying to do is, well, why did they stop taking heroin or being addicted when they got home? Well, they were with loved ones. Um, they had work. They became part of their community and family. We can do that. We can do that part. We can help with that part. And a policy that, you know, we, like for example, me and my oral surgeon. But um, we have, as a society, we have to do that same thing. We have, some people are in a kind of a war zone. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about certain cities, but Baltimore is almost a war zone now. High violence rates, total lack of social order. And that's something society has to deal with. And we as therapists don't tell people, well, focus on your war zone. We tell people, well, we can, you know, let's get out of the war zone in your own life. How can we help you to do all of that? So there's another logical fallacy that comes up and you talk about in some sort of length in different dimensions of your memoir. But then you get people who are <clears throat> sort of become wise to the cognitive dissonance, to the stories that we allow ourselves to believe and they say their eyes are open there's somehow they say whoa 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 this is this story's all wrong now where do i go um which is i guess a good first step to acknowledging well what is reality and a lot of times those people focus all their energy on you know fighting the current system or um you know being resentful toward people who believe those stories but not trying to actualize what really is going on. You know, they, they can be equally as delusional 
by just simply trying to fight something, even though it's probably right to buck against it, because they're not totally, they're not making a reasoned analysis of, okay, so what really is going on? They feel hurt that they've been, what do you say, indoctrinated into some cultish sort of a mindset. And some people are trapped and some, the people are torn about their own delusions. Some people strive to escape them and they turn to us for freedom. And some people don't want us, it's free country. Um, and some people are torn, you know, they'll come and they'll start to argue with you about all of that. And all of the data indicate, you know, Martin Seligman's whole operation indicate that that's, that's lost energy. Mm -hmm. Fighting, dwelling on your trauma and dwelling on your disease is lost energy. Everything is planning and, and focusing forward and moving forward. And so, you know. I mean, I mean, though, like the people who let's just let's take AA. So people who have been in AA for 20 years and then they're realizing, you know, I've always had this kind of tension that AA is not working out for me. And now I'm hearing a few voices that are saying, yeah, yeah, that's a thing. You know, it's a you know, it, it really can be difficult. It can, really can be limiting. I said, well, screw AA. You know, they're on the charge anti-AA, but they're not really thinking about what makes life worth living. They're thinking about why AA doesn't make life worth living. They can't open their eyes to see the, the bigger, more important picture. So do we, I mean, you're- Just an I, example. One question to ask is, are we obligated to provide an alternative way of thinking? And we both get letters and interact with people and say, oh, thank God you gave me that freedom to do that. Yeah. And some people, you know, kind of climb free on their own. And they sort of say, well, you know, I don't need, I mean, people quit AA all the time. And they sort of find their own way to freedom. And we believe that um, that's possible. And we love to hear stories like that. We love to hear stories about, I mean, like Matthew McConaughey is saying, well, I'm, I'm just not going to go into my trauma. That doesn't work for me. So we're trying to expand the non-trauma, non-disease part of the universe. Apropos of Afghanistan and Vietnam, there are a group of people who are consolidating that and will never let go of it. And the war that we see going on is, well, there are more people like us around than more people questioning AA. Trauma, I don't know if we've gotten to the a peak of, and going downhill yet with that. Um, and so we perceive that at the same time that the counter movement doubling down on the disease theory um, is also apparent. It's, you know, maybe we're seeing things in more like terms too much. There's kind of a battle going on. And the question that I'm posing is, will we ever get to, I mean, 93,000 deaths is getting up there. And, you know, it's quintuple, you know, since 1997, when Alan Lesher says it's a brain disease and it matters, it, the annual rate of deaths is quintupled. Is there any point at which we'll be disgruntled with that or will we always accept that reality? Will people come up to you and say, oh my God, 125,000 people died, 250,000 people died, we really have a disease. Will that ever get moved over and what will make it move over? That's a realistic question and it's and it's cynical and i wonder is that like if we leave it there are we define our own device or our own advice to you know remain positive optimistic and put you know put both feet forward 
you know what in other words that's a good question what are we doing to change that I don't know, Zach, what, you know, you face that question in your own life. You, for better or for worse, you're so damn popular. You were on your county opioid crisis board. So you actually had a seat at the table. If you see Hamilton, I, I, I forget what are they uh, being in the room. Yeah. Hamilton got to be in the room where they decided American policy. And it was a tough slog and you decided you know, you weren't going to get up on the table and start screaming. Right. So you decided it was too stressful. You can't change that reality, even though you were there. You've had more and more direct and it's small scale, but you have had more direct policy exposure than I have. Nobody even invites me into the room. Yeah. Uh, you know, in one way or another, I, I try to be invited because it's got to be a participatory kind of a thing if we are going to get beyond I mean, we're, we're always just going to have we're humans so we're always going to have you know some sort of mythology that we rely on to carry us it's, and the question is uh, can we make a smooth transition once that mythology no longer brings us forward and it's actually giving us diminishing returns and i'm i am always trying to do that i'm trying to stay positive that i have to believe and act like that's possible to do and that I can participate. I don't want to be, uh, what's the word, like solipsistic or anything. I don't think I have all the answers, but I want to be a participant in this and and do good, do my part. And I, I want to- That's called existentialism. I don't know. You have yeah. to do the best you can, tell the truth. And my, my memoir, Scientific Life on the Edge, is about how throughout my career, I've had that role. And it's a grueling role. And it had some points where it could have pushed me- completely off the deep end and you know but I had a combination of skills that allowed me to get by as do you you know we both are survivalists so far uh you've got a little longer to go but you know we're betting on you and um there, you have to develop a, a way of plowing through life I dedicate the book to civil vice who discovered who before they knew about germ theory said if Doctors washed their hands before they delivered babies. They'd have fewer stillbirths and fewer infections of women. And he ended up dead in an insane asylum. Uh, because people said, what's he talking about? They didn't know about any, uh, about germs. He came up with this like in, before the Civil War, the 1840s or 50s. So we're trying, you know, you and I are trying to avoid insane asylums. <laughs> so Nietzsche wrote, when he wrote God is Dead, He's sort of writing about this phenomenon, isn't he? Like we've we've always believed on God, we believed in God. We've always come together in this belief. We've used God as our values base, but now people are waking up to the idea that there's no real evidence for it, and maybe we don't really need we don't need a God to instill our values. People are becoming, you know, just sort of becoming more. What do you call it? They're losing their, the belief in God and. And he's, he, uh, to his credit, I don't know that he's really has a dog in the fight of whether there is a God or there's not a God. His struggle was that as a society, if we no longer have this myth to hold on to, to bring us together, uh-oh, because now we're all going to go our separate ways and nobody knows what the hell they're doing. So we could say the same thing. Nietzsche right well, now might say. I mean, in our defense, we have created the Life Process Program. And right. You, you work every day in the schools. 
And what we say is, well, for people who want an alternative way of looking at things, here we are. Right. And a certain number of people thank us. And we're working with people who more or less believe what we believe. You know what I mean? They're not, you know, I think it's safe to say none of the coaches at the Life Prosper program are disease buffs. And, you know, you can only stake out your small. You're not getting worried, are you, Zach, about the, uh, the long haul? Because it's, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that there's going to be large scale change. In I'm, a, I'm a Sisyphus kind of a guy, so I don't mind. Uh... No, I feel it feels like I have purpose at least, but I am saying that um, we could say the same thing now to talk about the challenges in people's belief systems. We could say we could just replace God with the disease model. The disease model is dead, but you know we got everyone's going to fight to try to preserve it. That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying about Afghanistan. People want to believe in some giant big right. monolith that explains everything. Monolith, exactly. That's and then way. they're going to like take a medicine and they'll get better. And you, yeah, that's a human tendency. And I don't know that we're go, we're not going to we're not going to make people existentialists. Yeah, we're going to uh, try and be mandate and be uh, provide food and clothing for people in the existential corner in the addiction field. So that's our little fate in life. I don't know. Maybe they'll all decide we're right in five or 10 or 20 or 50 years. Somebody with a grand idea or with more energy than us, although, I don't know, for, I guess both of us are pretty energetic in the work that we're doing. It, hopefully we'll listen to this, like one out of the, whatever, thousand people that hear this and come up with some idea. You know, that's, it, there's a reason why we're doing this. It's like, we're, we're not, we can't expect that every time we put forward an effort, we're going to change the universe, but damn it, we're trying to. We have to be aware. We can't, sorry, we're stuck having to believe reality. Now remember, I'm 75. You know, I'm a little older than you. Yeah, but you, Hopefully, you know. I'm willing to say, you know, I've done my best. I'm, you know, I'm going to go out for, you know, veal parmesan and like, you know, uh, watch some, a video tonight. <laughs> and, you know, I've done all I can. And yeah. And I'm sure you feel satisfied knowing that you have done all you can, that you are doing all you can. And I haven't quit, as this little podcast indicates. Well, we better let people go back to their existential musings. Um, <laughs> we've covered Vietnam, Afghanistan, Lee Robbins, Carl Hart, addiction theory, my oral surgery, <laughs> uh, existentialism and Nietzsche. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, take your pick. <laughs> all Au right, revoir. Steve. Take care.